1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the producer and host of today's podcast, and I'm pleased to have Stephanie Elizondo Greist with me to discuss her book, All the Agents and Saints, Dispatches from the U.S. Borderlands, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2017. Stephanie is Associate Professor of Creative Nonfiction at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is also the award-winning author of five books, including Around the Block, My Life in Moscow, Beijing, and Havana, published in 2004, 100 Places Every Woman Should Go, published in 2007, and Mexican Enough, My Life Between the Borderlands, published in 2008. Hello, Stephanie, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hola, everybody. Great. Well, I was hoping you, would, uh, you wouldn't mind taking just a couple minutes to uh, share with our audience a few things about your, your past, both personal and professional.
0: Oh, all right. Well, the most important thing to know about me is I'm from Corpus Christi, Texas. <laughs> and that's quite important because I grew up 150 miles from the Mexican border. And we spent quite a lot of time uh, going across the border when I was a child. That was our favorite way to spend a Sunday. And also, it's relevant that I My life growing up wanted to get out of the South Texas-Mexico borderlands. Uh, In my mind at that time, I thought it was tremendously boring, and I had wanderlust raging through my veins. I just wanted to travel far and wide. And when I was in high school, I was lucky enough to go to a journalism convention in Washington, D.C., and the keynote address opening night was given by uh, this rock star foreign correspondent who told the most amazing stories I'd ever heard of riots and revolution and coup d'etat. And when he was done with this oratory, uh, over the course of which I decided I wanted to be him when I grew up, (laughs) I asked him for advice on what to do. And he looked at me and he said, learn Russian. And so I did. And that was what started me on a very long journey. I wound up, um, you know, so this is me, Mexican American growing up in South Texas, Um, Actually, I did not grow up speaking Spanish like many of us. um, My, my, my elders did not pass on a language that had only resulted in considerable hardship for them. And so being told to learn this other language that had nothing to do with me sounded like an adventure rather than an obligation or something that was sort of guilt led as my, was my relationship to Spanish at that moment uh, growing up. And so I saw Russian as this liberating invitation and I took it and I studied the language for four and a half years, moved to Moscow and commenced my life as a traveler and as a writer. And so wound up spending several years living, working, traveling throughout the communist bloc. I lived in Moscow. I lived in Beijing. I lived in Havana, but every time I would Uh, be out on the street and meet someone new, encounter someone new, what what I began to slowly realize over the course of the years that I was there was that I heard the same story again and again, which was of people telling me these quite remarkable stories about all of the struggles they had endured to maintain their cultural ties in the face of totalitarianism, Uh, you know, when I was in Latvia, I met, um, actually Lithuania, I met a gentleman who spent most of his twenties in the gulag being tortured on a ritual basis because he refused to renounce Judaism. You know, I just, I encountered these really shocking stories and gradually began to realize that all of the people that I was meeting and enjoying spending time with had made sacrifices for their culture while I had totally abandoned mine and left it behind. And that is what uh, turned turned my journey to a very different direction. Um, initially, when I set off, I thought that I was going to be a foreign correspondent, and I actually planned to spend most of my life living overseas. Uh, but then I became very fascinated by Mexico and all that had been lost when my family migrated across the border. And uh, that's what sent me to live in Mexico for a period. And at the end of my time in Mexico, I drew another realization which was hard for me. Uh, I thought that moving there would turn me into the self-actualized Chicana, the Mex- Mexicana that I just knew was inside of me, but um, quickly realized that, no, what binds the people is shared memory. What binds a people are their bedtime stories, their childhood poems and their prayers. So that's what made me realize what I am is a member of La Frontera. I'm Fronteriza. I am Um, I hail from a people who walk between worlds. And so that is what sent me back to South Texas in 2007. And at that point, I had been trained as a journalist. I'd been working as a journalist for over a decade. And looking around with journalistic eyes, I realized that I was in quite an extraordinary place and also a place really plagued with injustice. and. My only response to that was to pull out a pad and a pen. So that is how this book came about, was just seeing all around me that essentially South Texas had become a graveyard uh, for all of the people who did not make it in their journey migrating north, and also a graveyard for all the profound environmental injustice uh, that was endemic in the countryside, and so many other things um, that eventually became the backbone of all the Agents and Saints.
1: Right, and, and from you talking about your early experiences, that automatically has helped me to see in ways how this book comes together, because it's not just about the South Texas borderlands, that, that covers about half the book, but you also make a, to me, and I think to perhaps a lot of your readers, maybe, a, a surprising connection to the New York-Canada borderlands, and... Uh, you talk a little bit about how how that comes together.
0: Yes, I sure will. So uh, i had been researching all the agents of saints for about seven years, and at that point, I w- thought that I was writing a book about the southern border. Uh, that's what I'd spent all of these years researching. But then something quite miraculous happened, which is I got a job. Um, up until that point, I had been you know kind of a nomadic freelance agent, and I actually got a job to work at uh, St. Lawrence university, which is just 18 miles South of Canada. And that that, that was quite exciting to me, the thought of moving to another border to see what was happening there. And so I did. And when I arrived, I was living in a town called Canton, New York, which has about 2000 people. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazingly small. New York city is a full like nine hour drive away. I mean, it's, it's really, um, Quite far from anything except for uh, when I looked it, When I consulted a map, I saw that we were only a forty-minute drive from the Mohawk Nation of Akwesasne. And my entire life, I've always been quite fascinated by uh, by indigenous issues. And I, uh, especially when I lived in Mexico, I, I spent a lot of time with Mayans, and I. I've always been interested in Native Americans issues in the United States, but never actually lived close enough to a community to get to know one. And so very excitedly, I started, um, I, I'd only been living in Canton for like three days when I took my first road trip out to go and see what I could find. And experienced uh, probably the most profound sense of deja vu in my life that continued every time I would speak with a Mohawk. And so the Mohawk nation of Akwesasne is bisected not only by the United States and Canadian border, it is also bisected by the Ontario and Quebec border. Uh, this community is only about 26,500 acres, uh, which is a tragedy in and of itself. This was once you know, a, an endless land, an endless community for, for this people. Uh, but it has been condensed to to uh, to, to that that landmass, and um, it is controlled by a dozen different jurisdictions, and that drives them absolutely bonkers <laughs> with uh, complete understanding. And so, I began to realize that they were living in such a similar reality as as Tejanos, as my own community, um, and they were fighting back in really interesting and engaging ways that quite excited me. And so uh, within, within one trip, I realized that uh, this was a, a destiny and this was a community that I needed to learn more about and, and eventually record. And so, so yes, so All the Agents and Saints is actually divided into two, as you mentioned. Uh, the first 10 chapters are about the South Texas border, where I am from, and then the final 10 chapters are about the Mohawk nation of Akwesasne and every chapter in South Texas has, it's sort of like, there's like a little mirror in between the book. Uh, So for every chapter in one, there is an echoing chapter um, which shows how these communities are facing almost the exact same struggles. Um, Everything from environmental degradation to language loss, to drug trafficking the diabetes epidemic confrontations with the border patrol We all have the same struggle, as well as the same method of transcendence. Um, Religion and faith is really what gets both of these communities through these tremendous difficulties.
1: Yes, you know, and I wanted to point out uh, something that I I really appreciated is that although the you know, the book primarily is looking at the similarities between these two very different geographies, which you do a wonderful job as you open both sections of explaining what this, you know, terrain and the geography, both physical and cultural, uh, looks like, what it feels like. I mean, you, all of your, you know, your previous experiences, you know, a, a wonderful travel writer, um, you know, is just really shines through, I think, in your ability to narrate for the reader. What you're experiencing, but also culturally, you know, you do point out the, the different histories and kind of battles with sovereignty, um, you know, conquest, etc., cetera, colonialism with the with European nations. So you do point that out, those differences. But again, the book is about these striking similarities, as you just mentioned, around the, those particular issues. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to just, you know, commend you for that. and thought that was great. Now, in the first part, it is, as you mentioned, this is a sort of homecoming for you, right, having, you know, been away for quite a while uh, to the South Texas borderlands, particularly, you know, Corpus Christi in in that area from, you know, from the border, from the Rio Grande Valley area up to Corpus Christi and around there. So what was that like, you know, coming home? What what was it that surprised you? Um, You know, you, you started to hint that you've, kind of saw the, you know, this, this home through a different lens. So what was it, you know, can you point out to us uh, some of those things that, that really struck you?
0: Quite interesting was that I'd been gone for so long that people no longer took me as one of them. Uh, you know, for so long, I'd been so identified, I'd, I'd so identified myself as being from from Texas, for being from South Texas, uh, only to, as I was traveling about South Texas, everyone was always asking me where I'm from. And I'm like, I'm from here, you know. and They're like, no, no, that's all it is. I'm like, yeah, aquí, you know, like I'm sorry, de aquí, and uh, no one quite believed me. Um, and 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 I myself felt myself to be different. I mean, I think this is sort of the eternal, you know, little sad song of the traveler, <laughs> is that uh, you eventually do become a citizen of the world. Um, so I'll actually tell you that I, and, and I think that that is enabled. That that is maybe what enabled me to 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 record this community as well. Um, you know, seeing it with sort of fresh eyes um, could be in on certain types of questions you ask. Um, it, I didn't take anything for granted. Uh, I was able to translate the place uh, as though looking upon it with fresh eyes and with, with, with even new eyes uh, because I was. Um, but then actually after writing the book and publishing it, I, I wrote the book as a testimonio. Uh, as a document of witness of what life is truly like for for the members of La Frontera, uh, both north, north and South. And I planned a tour of about 40 cities uh, that I was going to take in the fall of 2017. And I just begun to do some tours. I just started promoting the book when I began to have uh, some really bizarre abdominal discomfort, um, began to, I began feeling like I was getting full, not in my stomach, but actually all the way up to my neck. as so though I was eating and I was, the food was rising up to my neck and that was a little bit alarming. And so I went to a doctor just by chance uh, when I happened to have a, a, a two day transition period from the Southern tour, actually, before I headed up North and went to the doctor and she placed her hands on my abdomen and, and looked at me and asked if I was pregnant. And uh, it turned out that my left ovary had somehow grown a basketball sized tumor and it was cancerous. And so I canceled my entire tour to undergo chemotherapy and surgery. And I have to say that I've never felt more connected to this part of the world than I did when I received that diagnosis. Uh, That is what it also means to be a member of the South Texas (laughs) Borderlands and also the New York-Canadian borderland, um, the amount of cancers, unexplained cancers, freakish cancers—it's—it's it's just everyone. Everyone has one. Everyone has one because, as I mentioned, South Texas is surrounded by petrochemical industries, and Aquasazi, the Mohawk Nation of Aquasazi, is surrounded by three Superfund sites: uh, Reynolds, Alcoa, and GM uh, that have been polluting. Um, actually, the Mohawks have it even worse than we do in South Texas for the their Superfund sites for about 20 years. Uh, this is well-documented by the EPA. They And actually, the, the companies had themselves admitted to, for 20-something years, dumping all of their PCB laden waste directly into the water stream, um, just a mile away from the nation. Uh, and the Mohawks were traditionally fishermen. And so the, the Mohawks began to realize that all the fish they were pulling from the river um, had tumors in it also and those tumors were transferred onto them so these are very ill communities and when i myself received this deep illness i began to realize that i truly am of this community for all that is wonderful and terrible about it
1: that is you know when i read um that when I, you know, both when I read through the book and I read through this, as I mentioned to you before we started recording with the class, was I, I taught this, uh, we taught this book in a class uh, last, uh, in the spring semester. Um, what struck me as I was reading about just what you're describing, you know, the the amount of an environmental industrial industrial pollution and waste that goes on in both of these borderland communities and the resulting health consequences just tragic um and and truly you know like an epidemic um proportions it got me trying to start considering I i didn't devolve you know really create an answer about this it just got me wondering about what is it about these these borderland spaces right that that create this, you know, with the the, the part of, like, inter, um, you know, and multi-governmental, you know, agencies and, and uh, you know, jurisdictions that have control over these various types of regions. There's, there's something about that mix, right, that that causes this amount, that, uh, that promotes this amount, uh, you know, of, um, you know, just corporate largesse, you know, and, and kind of like a laissez-faire attitude in some ways. That's allowed this to happen, uh, you know. I don't know, and I'm I'm really struggling to articulate what I've tried to think about. But as you've mentioned, there's there is this just striking and eerie, um, you know, connection between the amount of industrial waste and, and environmental racism that is occurring, and these two spaces, which I think you you said what they're about 2,000 miles apart. Is that right? Mhm mhm-,
0: I think they're viewed as sort of the ends of the world, the repositories of the world when actually they're the beginning of
1: the world. you want, can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by beginning of the world
0: uh they're the they're the frontier they're the the first face that you meet when you exit one nation and enter into another, and they um rather than sort of being best face forward <laughs> they end up being a place of uh, well, actually, I do feel that they are. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm going to contradict myself. I mean, I, I think that these are thriving, vibrant, amazing communities uh, that I that I love very dearly, and I think that anyone would benefit tremendously from spending time in them. Um, they've profoundly enriched my life. But uh, but if one is driving through quickly and not actually taking a moment to stop and talk with people, which tends to be the case, uh, they will what which what, what you visually see are these. Toxic communities. That's the first thing you see when you you enter my own community, Corpus Christi. You, you drive by fifteen miles of these oil and gas refineries um, that are belching pollution into the sky. Um, when you before you even arrive to the Mohawk Nation of Akwesasne, you see these gargantuan industries um, that have actually you know a couple of them have actually been abandoned, um, but they are still festering. Uh, their, their their legacy is still in the
1: land. Right, and I get what you uh, part of what you're saying here too is that they are. I mean, these are communities and regions for the most part that are, you know, out of the way. You know, a lot of the communities that, that you actually go to and you visit, right, would be considered rural, right? You I mean, you have to go a ways out of your way, right, to get to particularly some of these, um, um, you know, communities that have, that have suffered the most, you know, the, the most type of uh, extreme forms of industrial, uh, you know, waste, right?
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That actually reminds me of something that one of the Border Patrol agents I interviewed said is that um, he is referring to Falfurias, which is 80 miles north of the border. And he said, you know, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere out here, but actually you're in the middle of everywhere here <laughs> um, because, you know, it's there's so much that you cannot see in these regions as well. So, you know, at any given point when you're anywhere with, you know, within 100 miles of the U.S. border, you um, you have no idea who is lurking behind, um, behind the bush. I mean, the Zetas could be there, uh, or, or someone who has uh, actually far more common than seeing someone from the Zetas there would actually be, um, you know, a child that is walked 30 miles to avoid a border patrol checkpoint and, um, has also traveled across two different countries to try to have some, some semblance of stability in their life and safety, uh, from what they're what they're trying to escape from Central America, anyway. So yes, so these these are um, I I see these as frontier lands and very much in the middle of everywhere.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a very uh, you know, I think insightful comment and interesting kind of uh, you know seemingly contradiction, right? Uh, where they are so central, uh, right? As you know, borderlands and pathways, uh, you know, between. Nations, communities, industries, etc. Both of them, both areas are incredibly rich, right? With natural resources that have, you know, for decades and hundreds of years, even right, been, you know, just mined, you know, to, you know, and, and pillaged. Um, but also, I think that, that the, the comment you make that, you know, there is the I think the reason why the borderlands is such an, an appropriate phrase here because it seems so much more to me expansive than just a line in the sand you know so much in uh, the media talks about the border right but the reach of the border which is really what the borderlands that concept and that term gets at discusses and it kind of expands upon what, what you're referring to there just is how far right the border Extends from that line in the sand, whether it's a migrant that has to go far out of their way right to avoid certain checkpoints or you know somehow how you know growing up in a community that's a hundred or hundred fifty miles away from the border, yet you see very clearly and feels very much like you're still on the border um, you know that kind of struck me I grew up mostly in Southern California not mostly, all in Southern California, um, and uh, primarily in San Diego. But the last seven years, so I was very close to the border. I lived in a suburb called Chula Vista, which is only about 10 minutes away from the U.S.-Mexico border uh, in San Isidro. Um, and so there, growing up there, it was it was very – Visible. I mean, the, the most striking image to me that reminded me that I lived in a borderland, if you will, or right on the border, was, you know, those, those signs that you don't really see anymore, because I think there's only one still surviving, those yellow, you know, kind of warning signs that depicted a family running across the freeway. That, for me, w- would always strike me when my family, when we'd drive south. You know, or sometimes you would see it in my childhood. If we drove north, even as far up as as Oceanside, you could see these signs, right? That would warn you that that people could be crossing the freeway. You know, when I moved to Los Angeles, this, the striking thing was is there was no more of those signs, and Los Angeles was, you know, is I don't know, a couple hundred miles away from you know the border, but it still felt so much like I was living in San Diego in that I was still surrounded by. Right, uh, this this mixture of culture, um, you can visibly see, um, you know, recent immigrants from not, of course, only Mexico but Central America, particularly Guatemala, El Salvador. Right, um, you know, so and that that got me in the, in, the, in the mindset of what I think your book does a good job of, of really depicting. Um, even though I don't think you in certain parts goes explicitly into stating this, but that that reach and that extension of the border, right, um, in that, that, that you see that one can, that one doesn't just see, but you experience it, right? As you said, so much of this is about shared experience. Um, that is something that I think that's part of that shared experience of living in a borderlands, regardless of how close you are to that actual line, right? You can be hundreds of miles away and still, right? That experience is, it's, you see it, you feel it, um, you know, you see it represented, you know, in people, in culture, in debates, in issues, right? In politics, uh, etc. Again, I'm thinking about uh, the the similarities that you pull we've we've touched on some of them there's the right industrial uh, pollution uh, there is um, you know the the lack of what you talk of a, a, in a great deal you know that the lack of uh, you know economic options for both populations right there are certain industries. Uh, on the you know canada u.s uh borderlands you have you know a a casino industry that's kind of one of the few options um right you have uh in various things right so there's they're very limited options economically Um, but what i appreciate this book isn't just kind of like a, a detail of all these problems but you focus each chapter focuses um i believe if i'm recalling right you know on you know a a person that lives in one of these borderlands—an activist, or you know, uh, an artist, or it's an everyday person that's responding uh, to what it's like to live in the borderlands. You, I think, collectively refer to this as like the mode of transcendence, and, and you refer to this earlier as you know how you saw strikingly that it's religion and faith that that people brought together, you know, to transcend kind of this region and these troubles and these hardships. Um, is there an example or two that comes to your mind? Uh, I know the whole book is just full of them. It's probably hard to pick them, but that can really highlight uh, the type of people and the type of things that they're engaged in to transcend.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. The book, the book actually opens up with one of these experiences. Um, I was, uh, I went to a dinner party uh, at at the home of a legend in South Texas, actually a legend in in the world, uh, a painter, what, our most famous Chicana painter and most renowned Chicana painter, Santa Barrasa, who's a, I'm very lucky to call a very dear friend of mine. And we went to her home and just having a very normal conversation. And out of nowhere, she's like, oh, you know, you should go see the the, the talking tree. And I'm like, excuse me you know <laughs> like she said. and just very casually she's like oh yeah there's a tree in concepcion and it talks you know and and it heals and and then she tells me about her sister who had had a stroke and she got leaves from this healing tree healing talking tree in concepcion which is a town of like 20 people <laughs> and a little ranchito area and um she dipped she dipped them into uh into this oil and she rubbed them on her sister's Body and then suddenly her sister was 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 healed and was you know moving her arms and her legs again, and uh, so a friend and I looked at one another and we're like, all right, I guess we have we have a road trip ahead of us. So we set off for we set off for Concepcion and we met we met this lovely woman who planted this tree with a lot of love and deliberation and it grew up uh and um she she talked to it all along and um and then one day it began talking back to her and uh people came from all around uh the the tree is surrounded by a chain link fence that is woven with uh with rosaries from from travelers that come from you know a thousand miles away to visit this very famous now healing tree um and i you know, i I was raised in 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 a culture where this is this is this is how it rolls. You know, there there are there are trees that talk. Um, but then but then I went to you know a university that was like thought that that was obscene, and then I entered a profession which thought it was even more obscene, and. So so I'm I'm kind of perfectly split, you know, between like, whoa, is this is this is this is this you talking or is it is it craziness? You know, what is it? Um, but then uh it suddenly became quite clear to me that regardless of whether the tree talks or not, the woman believes it to be so. And I as I began spending more time with her, I began to realize that actually no one listens to this woman um besides the tree. Uh And what this woman is trying to communicate is that her water is polluted. She hasn't been able to use her well in years because of fracking, because of all of the abuse that the land around her has taken. It has poisoned her well. So this woman who has no money except for the donations that people bring when they come to visit her talking healing tree um, has to spend a fair amount of money going to a town to buy bottled water, which is ridiculous. And she's been doing this for years now and has, you know, I mean, we could just see all of the stacks and stacks and stacks of these empty water bottles everywhere. Like there's no need for this. And Um, and then that's when I began. That's how, that's how this book actually began. The inquiry began. Um, you know, why does this woman talk to the tree? Well, the tree actually listens to her. The tree actually offers hope. This woman has been lied to boldly by town officials, by, by county officials, by state officials. The EPA doesn't do anything. No one is helping her except perhaps for this tree. The tree will at least listen to her. And so this is something that I found time and time again in borders, North and South. It's, um, it's faith is the one thing, the one sort of standing, the one remnant that, that, that we have.
1: And this is the tree, is it not, that, that you walked up to and, and put your, you're, you're traveling with a friend, right? Mm-hmm. I, I forget his name. Um, Greg, yes. <laughs> okay, right, Greg, right. And, and both of you put your ear, right? Because she tells you, she asks you, what did the tree say to you? And, and you put your ear to it, right? Yes. And you, you heard water. Is that? Was we,
0: that yes, I have to admit, we did hear water. <laughs> Which I, and I also have to admit that I have literally never put my ear to a tree before or since. <laughs> Perhaps they all sound like running water, but there was. There was, without question, a trickling water uh, sound coming from this tree. And so we – and it, this was actually a cold day. It's, it's like, never cold in South Texas, but it was cold this day, like, actually quite cold. And so she said, oh, you know, the tree the tree doesn't talk when it's cold. And, you know, so you have to come back another day when it's like – because you know and that's also true i mean all south texas like if it's like below 50 like we're inside and you know have all of our sweaters on and we're not we're not doing much yes so life shuts down after 50 and uh according to the tree it does too so there you have it
1: <laughs> and so what was the um you know mirror if you will that you found for that you know the other example that you the similarity that you found for that in um, or person, you know, that represents like that that similarity uh, type of faith, res- faith-based spirituality-based response, you know, in the Aquasasni. And
0: Aquasasni, yes. So, uh, so Akwesasne Mohawks are. Um, I mean, there, there's several religions there, but the two most prominent and the two that I spent the most time exploring are uh, Catholicism and and then they're very, very, very. Old, very powerful uh, belief system, which is called the Longhouse. And the Longhouse has been around as long as there have been Mohawks. And that is a system by which they um, pay homage and celebrate. Uh, the seasons, the changing of the seasons, and so there are, I believe, twelve different ceremonies held throughout the year, and each one comes about when something new appears. So, uh, in spring, when um, you know the first, uh, when there's a, when there's the maple sugar rush um, in, in, in the maple trees, when the when the, the tap water is ready to be tapped to turn into maple syrup, they have, you know, that that's that's a that that process happens when there's a, the temperature is a certain degree at day and a certain degree at night. Anyway, and so as soon as that happens. Happens, then they have the, the maple ceremony, you know, when the first strawberry appears in the summer, this, the first person who sees the first strawberry lets the community know. And then that following weekend, they will have the strawberry ceremony and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a reverence and a ritual to, to celebrate these uh, and give thanks, actually. Um, all of Mohawk belief system is built around gratitude. I mean, how amazing is that? So they, they gather and for hours, uh, just to thank the strawberry for coming back again this summer, which is, the most magnificent thing I've ever heard, actually. Um, and they, they refer to it as, you know, the brave berry, uh, which, which if you think about it, it is quite brave for a berry to emerge from the soil and to be the first one and to, to lead all of the other fruits that come forth in the summer and and des- very deserving of being thanked, frankly. So I, I came to tremendously admire and respect the Longhouse tradition. Uh, in addition, the Mohawks also practice Catholicism um, and have for about 400 years, uh, not by choice. Initially, uh, the Catholics did quite a number on the Mohawks and basically forced them, uh, to, to, to worship, uh, their faith. Um, the French missionaries that came to the region, uh, and something quite interesting that fascinated me happened, uh, in the mid 1600s, which is a young, woman who was born of an Algonquin mother and a Mohawk chief father uh, and actually lost both of her parents to smallpox. Uh, and she herself got smallpox, but managed just barely to survive, although she was half blind and very stunted growth. She became quite fascinated by these French friars and became quite fascinated by this concept of, of, of this Christian belief of of Jesus and God. And uh left the Longhouse belief system and kind of became um, a, a, a very prominent student of these of these friars who became quite fascinated with her in turn because she was so devout and became quite fascinated by, uh, at that time, this was back when Catholic priests would do some self-flagellation. And she did this with quite vigor. She would take Tree trunk I mean, uh, she would take branches from trees actually and pummel herself to the point where she was bleeding. She would take thorns and roll around in them in her in her bed mat she would take um, she would take coal hot burning coal from a fire and stick them between her toes. Uh, she did these extremely damaging um, acts of penance. Uh, painful, I should not say d- damaging, well, they damage her skin, uh, and very painful acts of penance she would do. Uh, she she took on this religion with such fervor, and unfortunately didn't live very long. She died when she was, I believe, I can't remember, 22, 23, quite young. And um, as she died, the priests were astonished to and you know they 've written extensively about this. They left very detailed records of this. Uh, they saw her um, her face, which had been deeply scarred from smallpox, suddenly, the scars were removed, and her face became beautiful and and this aura came over her, and they all felt it, and they all saw it and they looked at one another and thought, "Oh my god, she 's holy." And that was uh important uh for for for, for many things. Um I, I think prior to that, uh they didn't believe that that a native person that an indigenous person could be holy, and they realized through Gatalita Kakuita that she could be. And then she became quite revered and the priests began to pray to her and so did um the Mohawks that were um feeling they wanted to celebrate Catholicism as well. And she became quite famous, quite renowned. And in fact, when I was living and and has for the past, you know, 400 years. And in fact, when I was living near the community, uh, the Pope announced that she was going to be canonized a saint. She was in fact the very first Native American to be canonized a saint, uh, the first Mohawk saint, Gadalit Takahuita. And so I was there. um, I actually went to the place where she, where her bones are interred in Ganawaga, which is a sister Mohawk community to Akwesasne. It's actually located South of Montreal in Canada. And I was there the day that she was uh, canonized, which was thrilling. And so there you also hear, you know, similar stories that I grew up with um, except instead of, Instead of Gatolita Cacuita showing up in a tortilla, as she is prone to do in South Texas, you know, there she shows up in your dumplings uh, when you are <laughs> working making flowers. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I love the, I love this about these cultures. It's, it's vibrant and amazing, actually.
1: Hey, and you write about a, a, a very, um, a, you know, it's the story's a bit different, but it's you know a direct corollary through this concept of you know kind of sainthood and and each region having their own saint uh, in mm-hmm. South Texas, right? With Julia uh, Navarrete, Navarrete, uh, Navarrete yes. Guerrero, right? Mm-hmm, and yourself yes. has kind of become the uh, a, 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 and is also going through the process of um, becoming a saint, yes. Right? Yes, yes, but she is. Stages. She's, she's the second or third stage so far, right? Some mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, she just needs hilarious. to,
0: yes, her, her miracles need to be better documented. It is quite a challenge, <laughs> they're quite a stickler for it, yes. She needs just a bit firmer documentation, and then she'll be ready
1: to go. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for sharing those examples. And there's so much that, and it really is that, you know, these narratives of these people that are, as, as you mentioned, transcending uh, the struggle. Of living in the borderlands and, and are insistent about being there, right? About staying there. This is their place, right? Uh, whether you're yes. Tejano or Tejana, uh, mm-hmm. or you know, you're, you're from you know the Aquasasni uh, nation or a number of the other indigenous cultures that are around there. It's you know it, there there is no choice, right? They have no desire to flee. That's obviously an option, but the ones that you focus on are those that are staying there and trying to, and are doing something about it, right? They are creating movements. You have movements in both of these areas to fight Mm -hmm. uh, the industrial, it's a document, you know, the industrial pollution and to push local, state, and federal government to do something, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and certainly, the activists in South Texas are doing, I think, an admirable job with the the total tragedy now of of, of, of um, all the refugees fleeing Central America. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, you know, some of the other chapters that struck me are the the I think there's one in particular in um, about the wall in you know the first half of the book that that talks about a, you know an alternative way, right? How do you engage with the wall? if it's not political. And you focus a lot on local artists, right? And how they are transcending the border and trying to connect Communities through art. I thought that's a that was a very beautiful mm-hmm. chapter. Is one that uh, my students particularly really loved. And you gave us tons of ideas. We were we spent I think two class periods just searching the web, following some of the websites and the artists that that you put out oh, uh, to see how fantastic. They yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. A great resource for that is actually Stephen Falk's website. So Stephen Falk, is a is he's German. Uh, so he experienced the fall of the Berlin Wall at a very formative stage in his life. And he, his goal is to document all of the artists of the borderlands, of the southern border. Uh, and so he has spent several years doing that, and has a fantastic website uh, full of these beautiful, beautiful images of the artist in their studio or the artist uh, with their performance art. And uh, yeah, it's whatever you need a, a pick up when things are really tragic in the border. Whenever you hear sad news, um, it's 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 helpful to to look at this art and or look at the artist Santa Barraza uh, and see that these remain places of tremendous creativity and, and, and vigor and energy and, and hope also.
1: Right. And that's another great, I think, p- uh, point that you bring up in the, it, it's a similarity and difference of the book. Uh, I mean, in between the two spaces that, uh, you know, on the Southern border, you have this wall, uh, right? In the Northern border, you don't, you don't have you know a wall like this. You do have checkpoints, um, but it's more of what I'm referring to is the, what the border represents and that for tejanos you know uh and, and i think broadly throughout the south southwest for those of uh, ethnic mexican uh or uh, you know ancestry it creates uh, as you point out more of a kind of like a psychic or emotional obstruction or block right mm. that limits the mm-hmm. connectivity uh between yes. you know the 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 borderland, the, the whole region between the connections between people across the border. I mean, you, you you've pointed to your own experience, which in many ways mirrored mine, and where your your parents didn't teach you right Spanish, uh, as mm-hmm. very much because of how you know what they had experienced and and how they were treated. Right. So there's this rupture, cultural rupture, and in many ways, mental rupture that is primarily perhaps the way that it's experienced in the Southwest, uh, in the Southwest borderlands. You point out. Though uh, in the north and um, the New York Canada U.S. Canada borderlands, it's more re- really a physical uh, obstruction that you know challenges and limits sovereignty. And there is that distinction between the two places. I mean, there is there are uh, you know activists and and and, and um, you know scholars right that. Uh, talk about sovereignty in the Southwest and and, and those borderlands, but it's not quite the same, right? It's, it's, it's really, really substantively different. Yes. Yeah. So for,
0: for for Tejanos, I feel like even though we have an exceptional culture ourselves, we have, we have a, you know, a world-class food. I have to say, Uh, there is no food better than Tex-Mex. I don't care what you California people think, but um, (laughs) ours is superior. So we have our Tex-Mex food. I mean, we have a goddess, we have, you know, Selena, we have, we have everything we need, you know, we are, we are a legit culture, but we we still, uh, for whatever reason don't feel that we are like self-actualized until we spend time in Mexico. And, the tragedy of one of the many, many tragedies of the border and the border wall and the borderlands is that we're afraid of Mexico. Um, the, the because we there is there is something to be said about the psychic damage that occurs when you have this architectural violence that makes you feel there is a need for it, and it even no matter no matter how I mean even me like I I, I know I've lived in Mexico I I understand I feel very well what what real risk is but still like there it's still psychologically traumatizing to cross this border which is ridiculous i i know i shouldn't feel this way but i do it's um, and so you can imagine people that that haven't had the chance, the opportunities that I've had, uh, what they feel of it. You know, most everyone I know, no one I know uh, has gone to Mexico, and I don't know how long. Like all the Tejanos I know, like people we stay on this side of the border. We're afraid now. Ever so, and it is devastating. It is so 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 sad. Um, and so that is a remarkably different situation uh, in the Mohawks. Uh, actually, um, couldn't be more different. Uh, so for the Mohawks, the there is no better place to know what it means to be a Mohawk than the Mohawk nation itself. Um, so, and, and they actually don't want to leave their nation. Um, many of them, because they feel as soon as they leave their nation, they get harassed and they do, they do. Um, I mean, they, and they actually use the words of trauma and PTSD when referring to the checkpoints that are continuously cropping up uh, throughout you know, just immediately, as soon as you leave the nation, it's it's very likely that you could come upon a checkpoint, um, and the border patrol are they're they're really tough on Mohawks, um, and they uh, you know every Mohawk you, you, there is no Mohawk that hasn't had a pretty miserable experience of of being questioned, of having to get out of their car, of having their entire car searched, and you know, and this often happens when it's like 10 degrees outside, you know, so, uh, it's, it's something to be pulled out of your car in the Mohawk nation. Um, it's, it's a very, very cold, frigid place. And, and you are forced to watch as they terrorize your car, trying to find something there. Um, what also happens that is awful is, uh, this, this actually was a major, major issue when I was living there. Um, there's rather than having a border wall, they have a border bridge and the border bridge connects um, New York to literally it goes from New York um, state to Cornwall Island, which is very much part of Akwesasne. And then it goes from Cornwall Island. That That's one bridge. And then there's a second bridge that goes from Cornwall Island into Cornwall uh, city which is um, uh, a city in Ontario Canada and then from there on you blaze forth into Canada and so for many 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 years you know up until uh, 2009 um, it was very easy to drive your car and go from you know New York to you know, into 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 the Mohawk Nation and out, and so people that lived on the Cornwall were just very easily able to leave the nation, come back into the nation just by hopping across the bridge. But then the Canadian Border Service Agency decided that they were going to arm their Border Patrol agents. And at that time, there was actually a checkpoint physically on Cornwall Island. And the Mohawks decided, no, we do not want Canadian officials to have guns. And so they surrounded the checkpoint and they refused to allow this to happen. And so what happened was Canada actually abandoned ship. They abandoned their checkpoint on Mohawk Nation and instead built it in Cornwall. But what that ended up doing was making every single Mohawk check in and check out of Canada anytime they wanted to leave Cornwall Island or visit Cornwall Island. And this added anywhere between 20 minutes and two to three hours to a day, Um, which is, I, 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 I can't even, there are no words strong enough to describe the fury that this, uh, that, that that emanates from Mohawks <laughs> in this daily insult to their sovereignty. Um, and this is, you know, we're talking about a trip that has to be made sometimes multiple times a day, because there's very little on Cornwall. I mean, Cornwall Island is its is place of home and, and nation and culture and reverence and, you know, so much, but no hospital, no, uh, very few places of work, um, you know, very few schools, like it's you know mohawks who live on Cornwall Island have to leave it like at least once or twice a day to do anything um besides you know hang out with their family at home. Uh, So, um, yes. And what I love about Mohawks and what I wish that Tejanos would do more of is Mohawks protest this absolutely every chance they get. Um, they are constantly shutting down the bridge. They are constantly having these major strikes. They are constantly in the state of writing letters. They're constantly demanding meetings. They're constantly, you know, with, with outsiders, they're, they're doing, they're living in a very active state of resistance so one of my dreams with this book is I hope that one university out there will be intrigued enough by the conversations that this book holds within uh, enough to fund a an encuentro of Tejanos and Mohawks. I think they could really learn a great deal from one another.
1: Man, it really has my, my mind thinking. I mean, so much as you're discussing that, it, again, both the, the distinctions and similarities, again, are what, what strike me. Just the experience of crossing, uh, you know, whether it, whatever checkpoint it is, whether it's a bridge or it's, you know, a line in the sand. Um, you know, that experience of, I think, earlier on in uh, at one point of your book, uh, I'm not sure if you were recalling this as your own experience or it was someone else's, but just how frequently, you know, say 20 years ago, um, or so, you know, those of us that were growing up, you know, then that you could easily cross the border. Uh, and you did it all the time. Like when I was in San Diego, when we first moved to San Diego, we always, uh, I mean, always, we, we went across the border a lot, but in the last 25 years, I haven't been back, you know, I haven't gone. And, and as you said, no one, uh, I can't say no one, but very few people that I know of close friends and, and relatives go across the border. Right. I mean, it is really that the the way the border, at least on the southern side, has been militarized. I can understand and I'm drawing a parallel between, you know, the, in some ways, the trauma that's experienced. You know, there is, you know, there's, there's a, a trauma, uh, you know, in ways that's experienced, I think, along the southern borderlands. That, that keeps us from doing that, right? Even though we know better, like you're saying, like, you know better, I know better, like, I know people, you know, and particularly more academics and researchers that are all the time going across, and they live binational lives, right, or transnational lives. But, um, you know, there is still a, a type of, you know, you know fear and, uh, you know, trauma that, that can prevent that. So, you know, and then hearing you describe that on that the, the northern border. I mean, having that, I can see that how it enrages uh, the aquasazonian in a different way because I mean they literally have you know treaties that they can point to, right? Uh, which is something we lack, you know, in the southwest, right? There is no. I mean, except for unless you're like the Tohono O'odham, you know, or right in Arizona in like the Nogales area, right, Sonor, Sonoran uh, area that, you know, they have something uh, in, in some ways, like they can make those ancestral claims based as, you know, an indigenous tribe that, you know, those of us that have cultural connections can't, you know. But um, anyways, just thank you for explaining that. And that's uh, truly, there's, there's so much that, that, you know, there's so many thoughts and, you know, that this book brings up. I, you started to get to it, and I wanted to start to wrap things up. And I wanted to ask you, what is um, another hope? You kind of mentioned one hope you have you know, for, you know, say, a larger institution um, you know, that they could get you know, to promote kind of com- conversation between these two different uh, groups that have such similar experiences. But what's another hope that you have for your readers as they take away from what I say is it, truly an experience? I mean, you, you, you do such a wonderful job of writing the book that it's, you know, it's not just a bunch of accounts and kind of like data points. It has all that, but it does a great job of really helping us to experience. If we haven't experienced the southern border to do that, uh, and vice versa, if we haven't experienced the northern borderlands, you've given us a great way to do that. Um, What's a hope that you have and a takeaway for the readers that you hope that they're they're taking from this experience when they read the book.
0: Yeah I, I really I mean the, the goal of the book was to, to, to write a testimonio uh, for what life is actually like in these in these regions of the world because we continuously have politicians telling us what it is like in these parts of the world and politicians that have absolutely no concept of what it is like they've maybe been there for three hours on a press trip once, uh, some like little diplomatic trip once that's it. And they are the ones that make all the policy and all the rules that govern the way that we live in this part of the world. So I wanted to have an honest document of, no, this is what is happening. And you talk about, you know, sending all of these border patrol agents to protect us. What actually needs to happen is we need people to come in and clean the goddamn toxins that are in the earth. Like that is what will protect us. You know, it's, uh, you know, no one who lives in the borderlands is worried about, you know, um, a migrant coming through. And it's it's it's. um, it's like maybe we're upset because you know our fence will get knocked down, um, but that's that's kind of the extent of the fear. It's so it's um, yes, it's it's wanting to contribute, actually have like a, an avenue for for these voices which are never consulted, and these are the experts. These are the people that, that live there that really truly know what life is like in, in this region, and I think it's time that we start actually listening to them.
1: Thank you for that. That's great. Well, I want to give you also a chance uh, to discuss what is it that you know, you're know you doing now, um, working on now, whether it's another project or uh, I, I presume you probably picked up the book tour that you had to put on pause.
0: Yes, yes. I can say that uh, this book, uh, I owe so much to this book in addition to all the enlightenment that it brought me and the pride that it gave me for the region where I'm from and uh, the joy of experiencing another that community at the Mohawk Nation of Akwesasne. In addition to all of those riches, it single-handedly cured me of cancer, or rather, I should say, resurrected me from chemotherapy, is what it did. Uh, it was a profound resurrection. Um, so I spent all of the fall where I was, I originally planned to be on book tour. I spent all of the fall uh, at UNC uh, Cancer Center and uh, undergoing treatment for chemo. And my very beloved university, uh, Chapel Hill, gave me this, a second semester off to recover from the chemo. And one of the events uh, that I had planned to do on my book tour was actually located just about an hour away, Elon University in North Carolina. And so they said, hey, you know, do you want to just see if you could come and talk to our students, you know, they'd read the book and they wanted to have a visit. And, um, I mean, I was bald, I was exhausted. I was emaciated. I was, you know, really not well, this is in January of this year. And, um, I thought, well, what the hell, just see what happens. And so, uh, So I drove out there and was exhausted by the time I arrived. I could just barely like set up in my hotel room and I just thought, wow, this is probably not going to happen. And the professor visited me and she said, well, you know, do you want to just come and say hello? You don't have to talk. You know, at any point you can just sit down or, you know, we can end the, you know, the students know what's happening. Like they just want to say hello to you. And so I thought, "Okay, I can maybe do that. So I went into the classroom. And there's just something about seeing like, you know, 30 students with like a copy of your book on their desk. <laughs> it just kind of does something to you, I have to admit. And so I, I was like, it kind of perked me up uh, in, a, in a pretty visceral way. And um, so I was like, oh wait, I can actually talk to you all. And, and I, I was like, give me 10 minutes. And, and the 10 minutes turned to an hour and that repeated itself again and again and again, I wound up doing the entire spring book tour uh because the book gave me the energy that I needed to make it happen and the readers and the questions and the, the stories, it was the stories, the stories resurrected me, gave me a reason to, to recover at rapid speed pace and, um, and enjoy it in an honor with which to do it.
1: That's wonderful to hear. Uh, both that the project has, you know, provided that motivating force, but, but again, just you know, that your, your recovery has gone well. I mean, that what a tremendous blessing, you know, um, and that seemed to something that, that came through to me as well. And, um, reading your book, there, there's a lot of, this is very personal for you. I think that the trip to the, uh, I think in both areas, but I think particularly home and, uh, particularly thinking about your own, uh, you know, uh, spirituality, right. Your own culture, making those connections. And it seems that, that really part of that, going through that journey really was a blessing, you know, in, uh, the experience you had overcoming cancer so it was wonderful to hear well thank you so much stephanie uh for joining me on the podcast uh again just a wonderful book uh great for of course not just college classes which you know that's where i've used it but um i think anyone and everyone should really really read this book beautiful cover uh again beautifully written just a uh, phenomenal job thank you again for your time
0: thank you so 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 much saludos